good morning and welcome again to another episode of the seamless connection this is mina malapetti and this morning i am thrilled to be here with dr cheryl clark um, she's the executive director and senior vice president of the mass league of community health centers institute for health equity research evaluation and policy as well as also being associate chief at Brigham and Women's Hospital and associate professor at Harvard Medical School. So first question I want to start with Dr. Clark is how do you do it all? Thank you so much, uh, Mina. It's so exciting to be here and uh, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to speak with you today. And I would say um, having great friends, um, collaborators and having a whole lot of patience um, makes it possible to, to wear so many hats. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, and one thing I always love to start off these conversations with, and as we get to know each other better is, and having the audience know you better, is just to start off with a personal anecdote in terms of what brought you to healthcare, what brought you to healthcare research, policy research, um, and what made you passionate about this particular subject? Thank you so much. It's such a great question, too. And even as um, we did our introduction and, you know, I thought about the different hats that I wear. I'm a hospitalist, so I take care of patients a social epidemiologist, uh, but one of the hats that I also wear is um, being a mom. Um, so I you know, have small children and it's, it's interesting, um, you know, as I sort of think about, you know, what brought me here um, to this conversation and just the way that we think about uh, health equity, part of um, what I carry with me is the experience of bringing those two little guys into the world. Um, as you may know, um, I identify as being um, an African-American woman, a woman who is black. And uh, there are um, real perils uh, that black women face as we bring uh, our kids into the world. And um, I experienced some of those. My, uh, my first, uh, both of my kids are NICU grads. Oh. And yeah, and they are, um, um, in many ways, um, I, I feel really lucky, you know, that they're here. I remember um, my son uh, was uh, actually not doing very well. And after so much um, sort of medical intervention, sort of, I was very lucky, you know, I have health insurance, I'm a physician, you know, I um, was able to get everything in place, was on all the medications, and it was really terrifying watching his numbers just sort of fall week after week after week and not having much that uh, could be done. And um, with my daughter, um, she was also at a point where she was really not doing well. And, but I also wasn't doing well. I was watching my blood pressure rise and rise. And I was so lucky, you know, at the time to actually have um, really my colleagues who listened to me and so who cared about what was going on. And so I wound up doing okay. You know, both kids are okay. They're running around now, but are, you know, really, um, but came into the world very early or at least uh, somewhat early. And it just made me realize um, how much we still don't know. So I got, you know, optimum care. I had physicians who listened to me. Um, not all women have that, but even with all of that, I did not, uh, I wasn't able to, to stop those outcomes from happening. So there's so much research that still needs to be done, so much that needs to be done around health equity. And so a lot of what brings me here is that lived experience and wanting to hold myself and quite frankly, um, our health system accountable to make sure that 
people don't go through what I uh, went through and that kids who are coming into the world come into the world healthy. No, and that makes a ton of sense. I guess one question that naturally comes to mind is if someone like you that does have all the resources, that does have all the education, that does have all the connections, and you experience that, um, I guess to start with, if you were basically the pinnacle of where we could be of having kind of all the right resources and support networks around you, and you still suffered those kind of adverse outcomes, it didn't sound like there were adverse outcomes at the end, which I'm so thankful for, but you know, it wasn't the ideal situation that anyone wants for that experience, right? So how much, how much of a difference do you think health equity could have or did play in that? Like, did you, do you feel like you personally experienced anything there? Or are you talking about people that without your resources would have suffered even more and potentially had, you know, a devastating outcome versus what you were able to get through. You know, I think it's interesting. It, I pulled on all of my hats and resources to sort of process this and think through what this might have been. Part of my area of, exp of uh, background, in any cases, is, is uh, social epidemiology and trying to understand mm -hmm. these bigger, wider forces that influence health and shape our outcomes. You know, part of uh, what I think we've all become more aware of in our national conversation is this idea of structural racism and structural inequities. And so we sometimes face um, discrimination you know, during healthcare encounters, but we bring a lifetime of experience to uh, our uh, childbearing for those of us who are people who give birth. We bring that experience to our, um, our just daily lives and the way that we sort of develop uh, stress-related diseases, et cetera. Um, and then it does play a, a role in terms of the way that we are able to access care. I don't think that anyone should have to have, you know, my level of access so that my friends were sort of at my bedside. And one, I credit her for saving my baby's life when he was at 25 weeks. We shouldn't have to have that. Um, and so what is it that we need to have in place? And I am calling this an emancipatory research uh, paradigm. How do we hold ourselves accountable to make sure that the research is asking the kinds of questions that make sure that people don't have to go through this, um, to make sure that we as both healthcare providers, as scientists hold ourselves accountable for asking the kinds of questions that, um, that really center people uh, and that prioritize uh, the needs of those who haven't typically gotten the benefits of research in healthcare. And what are the kinds of um, aspects that you're looking at in these communities, in these hospital systems, in these health systems that would have, if you would say, maybe the biggest impacts, right? If, if we're focusing, as we all know, there's so much wrong with our healthcare system. But if we had to pull, like, if you had the ability to pull two levers, right, what are the questions, what are the levers you would focus on to say, hey, we've identified these as having the greatest impact on outcomes? Absolutely. And that is why I am so excited that we've launched um, the Institute. Uh, for health equity research, uh, evaluation, and policy within what's called the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers. The Mass League uh, provides technical assistance to federally qualified health centers and community health centers in uh, Massachusetts. And I don't know how much you or um, our listeners know about uh, community health centers, but if you have to ask what one of the key levers is, it's community health centers. So they are in many ways born out of the American civil rights movement, but draw uh, globally from examples of providing care to people 
um, that's really holistic. So we so providing medical care, you know, providing primary care, but also dental care uh, for people who can't afford it, and really thinking holistically. So providing community-based uh, care where people live, involving multiple team members, for example, community health workers who can help think through transportation or are there other issues that are sort of getting in between um, oneself and, and one's ability to uh, access care. But importantly, it also, um, community health centers um, provide care irrespective of the ability to pay. And most uh, patients who uh, do uh, get their care at community health centers are below the poverty line, about 83% or so are. Uh, and most are also either uninsured or in Massachusetts on uh, uh, our, our state Medicaid program. And so one of the key levers is making sure that um, we strengthen primary care by making sure that we have access to community health centers and that that model of care um, is, is helpful. I, um, and for example, just anecdotally, in my experience, you know, I, I wound up um, just kind of um, working with um, lactation consultants and doulas and that sort of thing, evidence-based care. And if I had had care in a community health center, some of those resources would have been available to me. And so really important to make sure that we do that. I think the other lever that we should make sure that we um, think about is this idea that's called social determinants of health or social drivers of health. People use both terms, but really getting serious about as we set up mod models of care and paying for care, um, value-based care models, that we take that into account. That's certainly happening in Massachusetts where uh, there are uh, financial um, levers like uh, demonstration waivers that allow us to uh, pay for uh, strategies to address food insecurity, for example, and other issues as part of care. So if there are two things that we should do, we need to have a good place for people to be, community health centers, and we need to make sure that the care is provided um, addresses these social drivers and social determinants. No, and that makes sense. I've been talking with some researchers over at UPenn, and I don't know if you're familiar with their work looking at how safety net hospitals have closed, right? And and they're tracking whether that's increasing um, mortality, right? And I don't know if that's that's a relatively new concept, just to be like, if a hospital closes, do more people die as opposed to just going to another hospital? Um, and it sounds like this is relatively similar, but in kind of a more microcosm effect in terms of looking at community health centers and what impact they would have potentially, um, you know, do you have data today in terms of when you have a community health center in place, what are the healthcare outcomes there versus in healthcare deserts, if you will? Absolutely. And what I would say is that the stories are just so very powerful. One story that I will relate is around cardiovascular disease. Uh, there is a community health center in a town called Roxbury. Uh, it's a neighborhood in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, called the Demick. Uh, center. And part of what uh, DIMIC is doing is making sure that we address the issue of hypertension and high blood pressure in diverse populations. And also uh, doing something that's a bit interesting, right? So looking at um, the relationship between young people in their communities and older people and how building those connections can help so that young people can be aware of these issues and can look out for their neighbors to help uh, people to measure their blood pressure and to do that kind of education within communities. 
And that has been um, uh, an effective practice of both um, really investing in communities, teaching young people so that um, they become aware of these health issues, as well as building those sort of social relationships and social connections that help uh, to both advance, I think, health and uh, sort of well-being for young people, but also addressing hypertension and high blood pressure for older folks. Dr. Charles Anderson is the CEO at DEMIC and has um, spoken well about uh, this issue. And so that's, a, I think, a clear example of how uh, community health centers uh, do this differently and provide care that uh, improves outcomes. And that's fantastic. And, and one of the things you mentioned is that is focused on cardiovascular care and, and maybe uh, more specialized care than just a typical PCP would handle once it gets escalated past you know, a certain level uh, of appropriateness. What about bringing specialty access to the community health centers? Um, obviously, getting someone to a base level of appropriate health or appropriate health management is, is key to start with. How do you think about that next step where they have diabetes or they have blood you know, hypertension or they have um, COPD or any of the other you know, myriad of comorbidities we see in this aging population? Um, how can we help address those as we age in, in, you know, in our neighborhoods? Yeah, that has been so important. Um, I have had most experience um, in a place where our community health centers are hospital licensed. And so we have access, for example, to uh, doctors who specialize in uh, diabetes care and sort of arranging that. What has been helpful, I think, is that our national conversation really has uh, elevated this idea of health equity uh, in the minds of uh, clinicians, researchers. And so I think the next step really is to understand how uh, we need to structure you know, our you know, sort of affiliations and relationships to make sure that uh, our patients have access to specialty care. From my perspective, uh, as a researcher, it also means that there's a real role for the Institute uh, in helping to bridge those connections. I've uh, been really grateful to have so many people, um, researchers, academics, and others reach out uh, to me within my own uh, sort of academic circles, uh, wanting to build relationships and networks to figure out how our how the research that they're doing around you know, issues like heart disease, uh, issues like uh, hypertension can be better uh, connected to communities that have high burden and are high priority for those conditions. And so part of uh, I think building you know, those networks and strengthening that access to specialty care can happen through research and through some of those research networks where collaborations get uh, built, where we start to ask some of the questions that are really pertinent um, in an emancipatory uh, setting, uh, in a community health center settings. I think those things are, are, are part of how we get there. And what kind of engagement have you seen with patients? Because one thing that I have seen with uh, with communities of color, um, with potentially very um, disparate communities in terms of their access to healthcare and access to social economic resources, right? Um, they might not have the same trust level that you and I do if, if a doctor is telling them to do something or if a researcher is asking them about certain aspects of their life or their care. How do you foster trust and engagement with the communities to both make sure that you're getting the appropriate research um, data to help influence future decisions, as well as to ensure the patients today are getting the care and engagement they need. That's fantastic. Um, and I think I love even the way that you asked the question, um, how do we think about creating both care and research that's trustworthy? That I think is the crux. 
Um, often when we talk about uh, trust or when we frame things as medical mistrust, we put the onus on the patient uh, to, to trust us, to come in, you know, to believe the information. And I think the way that you have described that is exactly what we need to do is to be trustworthy so that we trust um, our patients in many ways to ask the right questions, that we build um, the infrastructure for having uh, relationships. I'll give an example. Part of what uh, we did even uh, uh, during the uh, COVID pandemic was to create forums so that we could come together and flatten hierarchies um, within our institution, have conversations, talk about difficult issues, and build those kinds of relationships um, with our internal community. A lot more of that needs to be done with uh, between sort of healthcare providers, patients, researchers. There are two um, sort of uh, ways that people tend to do that. Uh, most um, hospitals have patient family and advisory councils where you can kind of take off your white coat and sort of sit down and talk about what matters. You know, what is it that you're experiencing and how do we you know, sort of elevate that and make institutional change? When you do that in a research context, um, we often call that community-based participatory research where you're sitting down and again, taking off the, you know, putting the microscope away and you're speaking with people and really trying to understand what the right um, questions are, what the perspectives are. So there are so many uh, strategies and ways to do it. So a lot of it is just um, making ourselves knowledgeable and making ourselves um, available uh, to, uh, to, set those, to set up that infrastructure. And that is gonna be a high priority for the work that we do in the Institute. That's fantastic. For some of the work we've already done, can you give us an overview of, of some of the initiatives and the research you've already undertaken at the Institute, as well as potentially some of the most exciting or um, the, the outcomes that you're most proud of in terms of impact on policy or impact on care? Yeah. So the Institute has just launched. Uh, it launched in July. And what I'm excited about already is some of the work that we've done in preparation. Um, I can uh, send a, a website link to you um, called ourhealthstories.org, where we have started to do some of the work to understand the experience of structural racism um, and how community health centers are uh, taking steps to make sure that our patients are protected from some of those experiences. Um, it's a partnership between uh, the Massachusetts Mass League of Community Health Centers, so the technical assistance body for community health centers in Massachusetts and our partner organization in um, Mississippi. And we have been able to hear from uh, patient advocates, from uh, CEOs, from CFOs in both uh, states and have really heard uh, some tough stories, uh, some tough um, experiences that um, have, uh, I think really galvanized uh, our um, our hope in any case around the kinds of policies that we ought to be advocating for. And so part of what I'm really proud of is that we have started this in a way that uh, is emancipatory. And I can um, kind of define that and explain what that is, but we've started with listening. We've started with thinking through, you know, what is the infrastructure that we need to put in place? And we started with relationship building. So I'm, so I feel like we've gotten out of the gate in a, in a really good way. Um, and I'm looking forward to um, 
to, to more of this kind of work where we're hearing the stories, uh, collecting the information and then putting uh, the infrastructure in place to, uh, to begin to uh, work on and solve some of these issues and create other opportunities. I would love to get that website from you and, and definitely share it around. That sounds so interesting to me because I love bringing the face of of the stories to life because it's, it's easy to talk about numbers and they don't really impact anyone, um, you, you know, because you just get lost in the millions and the decimals and all of that. But when you you can connect with a real person behind it or a real community behind it, it, it makes it that much more imperative for us to do something right. Um, and I guess that brings me to my next point and kind of where I want to lead and close with here is what would be your hopes and goals for the impact of the Institute? If you look maybe two, three, five years down the road, how would you define success for, for this initiative and this Institute? Yeah, thank you so much. And I um, would be so excited um, to really, um, I think, lead with this idea of emancipatory research. And what we mean by that is it's the kind of approach where the infrastructure, the investment, you know, the um, both the science, the dollars are really embedded within communities, so that we have a place to be to um, to discuss these ideas, to follow through, and to start to ask some of the scientific questions, to put some of the ideas into implementation. And so, for me, if we've created a home for this sort of a of work, where um, community folk, just regular people can get together with folks who um, have some expertise around clinical care, who have expertise around data, and we can start to craft some of the initial questions and start to lay out uh, an agenda and a pathway. I will be so excited about that. Uh, so we're, we're creating that home as we speak, and um, I will look forward to, um, to being able to uh, provide updates to you and to your audience um, and to invite folks who uh, want to be involved in this work in the future to, to come join us. Well, and I was going to just ask you, so in terms of looking ahead for the next year, we, you know, what are we, what are you most excited about in the next 12 months? We, you know, we, we've kind of got a sense of what you're working on kind of long-term. What are you most excited in the next 12 months for? And how can we help as a community, as healthcare leaders, as members that care about health equity and want to make it part of our communities, whether it's in Boston or Mississippi or, or California? Yeah. I'm so excited, I think, for the next 12 months to really start to build that community. Um, as we speak, um, much of what I'm hearing as we are having listening conversations is that uh, there are real conditions, diabetes being um, one of the top conditions, hypertension and others that we want to build community around. But there are also these social drivers or social determinants of health that our patients are facing. And so over the coming year, I want to invite uh, those who are interested in social drivers who have uh, kind of unique and novel ways to think about um, addressing that, about integrating care uh, to come and join us uh, to have these conversations. So building this home um, over the coming year is gonna be extremely, uh, I think, um, fulfilling uh, and will help, uh, help the next stage of the work. That's fantastic. And these social drivers of healthcare, social drivers of health, are things like um, you know your your socioeconomic status, your access to transport, your access to healthy food. Um, are there other area, you know social determinants of health that I'm, I'm missing, other than the most common ones that people talk about generally that you want to make sure people are aware of and, and thinking about? Absolutely, I think uh, many people can also relate to this idea of social support and loneliness. 
uh, in many ways, it's important to make sure we stop smoking, but it's also important to make sure that we have social connections. I know that um, the social support that I received, even as I was trying to bring my little guys into the world, were critical uh, to making sure that I'm here today uh, to speak with you and also that my you know kids are here and everybody should have that. Um, it's also important to make sure that we address structural racism and structural inequities. And when we say that, uh, we're talking about really in many ways the foundation of society where we put in place policies, where we put in place uh, the kind of relationships and really just care about each other a little bit more along the lines of uh, race. Um, and then if we sort of think about what that looks like um, and if we can open up dialogue and have those conversations in a real way, um, I know that we'll make progress. That's fantastic. And I can't wait to hear more about the progress that is gonna be made. Um, Dr. Clark, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us this morning. I'm so excited for the work the Institute is kicking off and I'm looking forward to having you back in a year or so and, and seeing what all you've done in that time. Oh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it being here today.